This is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It is 6.18 a.m. God. Central Daylight Time. It's the last day of August, the 31st, 2020. This is episode 278 of Bitcoin and good morning. This will be my first podcast after I attended my first uh, Bitcoin conference, which would be Bitblock Boom 2020 that was held in Dallas uh, over this last weekend. And uh, I will get into a little bit of a recap of what happened and who talked and who said what here in a second. Uh, But before I do that, I want to uh, notify everybody that volume five of Citadel 21 is out. Um, And I I guess it's probably been out, but in case you don't know, uh, Citadel 21 is an online magazine that has recently started uh, running physical copies. The volume one is gonna be the first physical copy that people have been able to buy. I don't know if they have any left over there at the Citadel 21 store, but if they do, you can buy it via LN underscore strike or the strike app from Jack Mallers um, directly from their uh, BTC pay server that they have powering their magazine store. They also have subscriptions. And what that means is they are going to, and I guess this this really depends on how many subscriptions they get. And I'm pretty sure they're they're going to get it. Um, they're going to start printing every single one of the magazines physically, which is a, which is great because, yeah, it's nice to be able to publish things cheap, easy, damn near for free on the interwebs and all that kind of stuff. But there's honestly, there's nothing like having a physical copy of a book, a magazine, you know, like holding a photograph. It there's something about that, you know. There's just there's just something about that. Really glad that the guys over at Citadel 21 decided to bite the bullet and pay for publishing costs, uh, print runs and art set up and all that kind of stuff because it's it's a huge undertaking to do a magazine. So uh, hats off to the guys over there at Citadel 21. Make sure that you go get, uh, if they have any left, your volume one copy. And then uh, if you have enough money left over, buy a subscription for the year so that you make sure that you get the runs of the other magazines all right, so there's that one for community news. The the bit block boom recap. Let's see if I can do this and not make a complete idiot of myself. That thing was freaking fun. Now, I'm sure that there was a lot of people there at Bitblock Boom that have been to several Bitcoin conferences probably for the entirety of the oh, Bitcoin conferences that have been going on. Um so they they probably aren't reacting as strongly as 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 I am, uh, but yeah, this is my this is the first one I've been. God, let's see, I was lurking since two thousand what fifteen because I'm class of two thousand fifteen for Bitcoin. I didn't really start saying anything about it for oh I don't know probably a year. I probably started tweeting about it about Bitcoin and, and, you know, replying to people in the community, I don't know, 2016, you know, something like that. And by that time we started getting into the whole debate, the block size debate and all that kind of stuff. So by 2017, I was regular on Bitcoin Twitter. And, um, once I got to know some of these people started getting a decent following myself, um, I started realizing how cool all these people were and it'd be really nice to meet them. And this is the way that you go meet them. You go and you buy a ticket to something like Bitblock Boom, and then you get on a plane or a train or in an automobile, and you get your happy ass over to one of these things, because if you don't, you're really missing out. I mean, I'm not at all sad that I didn't go to like Bitcoin 2019. I don't like flying. 
if I can't drive to it, I'm probably not going to go unless it's something like going to Greece. I would like to visit Greece one day and Turkey, you know, something like that. For some reason, I'm kind of fascinated with the Med or the Mediterranean. So those kind of places, I I would do that. But I'm not going to fly to L.A. That's never going to happen. If I can't take a train or I don't have the time to drive there, I just... They've screwed flying up since 2000, uh, since September 11th. Um, they've screwed it up so bad, and it just gets worse and worse and worse to the point that I don't want to have a damn thing to do with flying. So this is the reason that I went to Bitblock Boom because it's essentially in my backyard. Uh, since I'm in the Amarillo area, it's only a six and a half or five and a half to six hour drive to over there to Dallas. So that's not all that bad. But I got to meet. So many people that I've been talking to on Twitter, and it's amazing that it didn't dawn on me how important it was for at least some of us. I mean, you know, some people are really recognizable, like, you know, Jimmy Song was out there. Uh, Tone Vase was out there. These people are fairly recognizable. You don't need to know what their Twitter avatar looks like. But for the rest of us freaking plebs, what we really need, and I talked to Gary about this, uh, we were both, we were both a little tipsy at uh, the welcome dinner on uh, Thursday night that it would be very interesting and highly, in my opinion, very useful to have your Twitter avatar printed on your badge at these conferences so that you can just hold up your badge and go, I'm this guy. That was very useful when I was like, I would like hold up my phone and I'm like, this is, this is me. And people, Oh, holy shit. Good to meet you. And that would be the way that we would start the conversation. So um, I think it's not going to be possible for anything like that to happen because the printing cost on something like that is would be astronomical. And there's and Gary would have to to, you know, put the I don't know, he'd have to defer the cost to the whoops to the ticket price. And that's not that's not going to work. So I started thinking it would be nice to be able to build like plastic, like, you know, a good size plastic card that does is not huge, but is big enough to have a good size image of your Twitter avatar. And you just attach that card to whatever conference lanyard that you're going to. So you can keep it behind the, the, your, your main identification uh, card that they give you at whatever conference. And then that way, you know, you can just like literally fold it over and hold it up and say, yeah, I'm this guy. I think that that would be a useful product. I don't know who's set up to print that shit, but if you are or know somebody who is set up to print that shit, I don't know, DM me. Let's find out how much that shit costs because honestly, I think that that would be pretty damn cool. Now, on to, on to the recap. Um, Thursday night is just the welcome dinner. And it's a lot of fun, but I was surprised that uh, as few people showed up to it as, as, as we did. Um, but man, that was where I got to meet Mr. Sue for the first time. I'd been talking to him for a while and that just kind of started the whole, th- the whole thing of, oh my God, so you're the guy I got to finally meet, you know, Phil and, you know, have some beers and everybody ended up going outside because it was a really wonderful evening and just chilling out talking, you know, and we talked about everything from there were discussions about oil and gas. There was discussions about farming and agriculture. There was, you know, people telling stories about how they got in. It wasn't just Bitcoin. It was like all the edge stuff that goes along with who these people are. And putting that together and watching that, watching that run out was, was really interesting. So then you get to Friday. I didn't go to anything on Friday. So I don't know what the hell happened on Friday. I do know that I missed a hell of a party, which I wouldn't have been able to go to anyway for reasons I'll get into. But um, they had a couple of presentations on Friday. Uh, I think it was, um, oh, Matt Hill from Start9 was demoing some stuff. I think there was a couple of other demos. And I'm, I'm really kind of bummed that I missed that. But I am not bummed that I was able to go and take my kids to the Dallas World Aquarium. If you're in Dallas and you want to go see something cool as shit, go to the aquarium because it's more than just fish. In fact, it's, you don't even see fish for like an hour and a half. Well, depending on how fast you want to walk through it. If you, 
you know, for me and my kids, it was seven, it's 70 bucks uh, to go on a Friday. I don't have no idea what the weekend looks like price wise. <clears throat> and I like taking my time through this place. So, but if you run through it, you can probably get to the fishies in like 30 minutes. But honestly, you're going to miss a lot of stuff. It, again, if you're in Dallas, you got a chance to go to World Aquarium. You got to go. So that's what happened on Thursday, which is why that recaps real slow. Then you get to the Saturday show. And that thing will hurt your butt because there is no chair in the world built to go from nine o'clock in the morning when Gary Leland had the welcome talk to when Gary Leland had the closing talk at 545. And then you get like a, your ass gets a two hour break. Well, there's a lunch break too and a couple of other breaks, but it, it doesn't matter because by the time, you know, 545 rolls around, your ass is in pain. Because you're sitting through, like, at, let's see, who, who talked first? Guy Swan with Bitcoin and Unstoppable Force kind of going over what a lot of us have, you know, come to believe in the last, you know, months or years, depending on how long you've been into this thing. Then we get Britt Kelly, who gives us a rundown on BTC Pay Server and what, what it can do, and in very many ways, how easy it is to set up and in other ways, the fact that even though it is easy to set up, there are some technicalities that you have to have to go through to be able to do this. You have to be able to be at least a little technical on some aspects to be able to get a functional BTC pay server set up to power your store. And guess what? They have people that will help you do that. But, you know, we're still in the early days of all this. It is not a one-click install on a lot of this stuff. On a lot of the stuff it is, but BTC Pay Server, because it's a payment processor that you run and you take care of all by yourself, you're kind of on the hook to be able to have to learn some of this stuff. So she went through some of that stuff. Then we have the moral case for Bitcoin from Jimmy Song. And Jim, what's, what I like about Jimmy is that he's an unabashed Christian, has no problems talking about it. And he made some Judeo-Christian comparisons to why Bitcoin is a moral money. And in, and if we get into that just a, a hair deeper, it's also doesn't violate Ju uh, Jewish law. And apparently, as far as the Muslims are concerned, is completely haram. So it's, it's, it's not, rather, it's, it's not prohibited by haram. It's not a prohibition. So it's so, I mean, I'm looking at it from a Christian standpoint. I can't find any problem with it. The Jews look at it and they're like, this is kind of kosher. And then the Muslims look at it and it's, it doesn't have a prescription against it. So you have the three major religions on the face of the planet all looking at this from different perspectives and they're all going, dude, this is totally fine. That's something to not be missed because even if you're not Christian, you know, over 90% of the world's population believes in some deity or follows some religion of some kind. There are actually very few true dyed-in-the-wool atheists, and as far as I can tell, they're all over here in the United States and Western society. Then we had the future of multisig with Will Cole, and he was, went through and took us deeper into what multisig actually is, what it's useful for, some use cases, cases under which it's not good. I... I mean, it was chock full of really good information about what multisig is and how to use it. Then we had Tone Vase, who was saying something about uh, Bitcoin can be the only thing that's considered sufficiently decentralized and took us through um, some issues about, you know, the fact that mining is fairly decentralized and he's not worried about it because even if it is all based in China, the way that mining works doesn't necessarily mean that it's all controlled from China, the fact that nodes running, you run your full node, by the way, nodes are fairly decentralized and that they're essential and they're not like underneath or over mining and the code base. There's so many people working on the code base for the Bitcoin client that it's just, it's sick. And in comparison to these other projects, there's almost, I mean, I find it fascinating that Bitcoin error logger John Carvalho, who does not like BCH, 
is actually mentioned as one of the people that contributed to BCH. And I can't remember what he did, but his contribution was a troll. I mean, it, it, it's amazing. There was like, I don't know, seven people that contributed to that thing. And I'm looking at the list of the amount of people contributing to, to the Bitcoin core code base. And it's just, it's huge. It's just freaking massive. The thing that Tone said that really kind of got to me was a drop off in the amount of full nodes that are on the Bitcoin network. Uh, we need to fix that. And uh, I may get into this, may or may not get into a discussion I had with, uh, with Matt O'Dell. He's a really nice guy, by the way. I mean, he's really, really approachable. He's really nice. A lot of fun to talk to. He will definitely put your ass in your place if you say something stupid. But, you know, God, we need more of that. So then we had a break. We actually got to go to lunch and to come back with Parker Lewis talking about the uh, uh, Gradually Then Suddenly series that, that he does. And he kind of recaps some of that. Jeff Vandrew was one of the most uh, interesting talks because it was about the tax implications of Bitcoin. Now, <clears throat> that one, I do have a couple of things to say. Um, he he kind of took you through what it means to be paid in Bitcoin versus buying Bitcoin tax implications of that. What it means to dispose of Bitcoin versus holding Bitcoin and the tax implications of that. Um, at least as far as United's, United States tax law is concerned. He's, uh, he's a CPA, a C, CFA, and a tax attorney, and his, he's domiciled in the United States. So he's not going to talk about what the hell Europe does, okay? So we don't know. I don't know what Europe does. But one of the things that, he's, one of the things that he was talking about was um, the tax implications of disposing Bitcoin, getting paid in Bitcoin, and the fact, like, like for instance, let's say that I buy Bitcoin. Well, there's no tax implications. Let's say that I offer a good and service and I get paid in Bitcoin and do not convert it to fiat. There is a tax implication if you so cho choose to report it. Okay, so one of the, I guess it was like if somebody paid me like a hundred bucks, I may or may not report it. If somebody pays me a hundred thousand dollars, I'm going to report that. The problem is, is that if somebody pays me $100,000 in Bitcoin and we have one of, one of our famous, you know, 13% or 50% declines, I'm on the hook for $100,000 if I reported it and it's only worth 50 because I got it when it was $100,000. And there's some complications with being able to um, offset how much like your income tax versus a capital gains loss. They don't... They don't really mix and match. You have to be careful. And if you have other questions about what the fuck's going on with that, I, I, I'd start following Jeff Andrews' Twitter account. And I wish I had it immediately on me. Actually, I, I might. Hold on for a sec. Because it's not fair to tell you to follow somebody and not have their thing. Jeff Vandrews' Twitter account is CPA At V-A-N-D-R-E-W W-A-T-T-Y. CPA, Vandrew Wadi CPA. So follow him and start, you know, maybe ask him a couple of questions if you're confused as to what goes on because there's some weird shit. He also talked about airdrop money and forks. And there was a, I had an interesting discussion with him yesterday at the brunch, the farewell brunch, because some of the things that he said caused me to, I, I couldn't stop thinking about the fact that when, Roger Ver decided to to fork BCH because what Vandrew said about the interpretation of tax law, I essentially should have reported that uh, that income, except that there. I mean, at what point do you do you report it? Because when I first got the fork, it was worth zero dollars, but then it ran up to what was it fourteen hundred when Coinbase Ninja lost it and then it subsequently, you know, ran out. The problem with the Coinbase fork holders is that when they got it, when they got it, they got it at $1,400. Technically, that's a reportable event for taxes. And then it's subsequent crash. So now you got to do a whole lot of work to talk to your tax attorney, your CPA, they got to prepare shit. It's going to cost extra money. And you didn't ask for it. Okay. You did not ask for this unless you did, in which case, fuck you. But if you didn't, like most of us, 
I had I formulated the question: Is Roger Ver liable for my time because of what he did? Now, mutual funds will cause a taxable event that you didn't ask for, kind of, because they rebalance your portfolio at the end of the year, and there could be tax implications by selling this and buying that and all that kind of stuff. But you actually do sign up for that because there's going to be, for lack of a better term, an end user license agreement, right? So when you sign up for the mutual fund, you are signing your name and there are some rules and regulations that are in fine print and you either read it or you don't. But if you sign to it, then the assumption is you read through it, you understand it, you're good with it. Guarantee you that taxable event shit is in the fine print. There's no fine print about your taxable event by getting a BCH fork. Okay, there was, there was no warning. It was just dropped on your ass. The question that I had, Jeff, was, is this, could I sue? Or better yet, could a class action lawsuit be um, filed against Roger Ver for incurring a tax liability that I did not ask for? Now, Jeff went on to expand on that just a little bit. He said, look, I don't know. I'm a tax attorney. What you're talking about is a potential civil case. Don't worry. I'm not going to sue Roger Ver. I, I don't care. But some people might. A lot of the whales might actually, you know, if you were holding, you know, 10,000, 100,000 BTC at the time of the fork, um, and you were hoping those guys are probably holding it in, in their own wallets. So they would have to occur, you know, incur like, you know, zero because it was when it was released. Um, if you weren't on Coinbase and you were holding it in your, your own private wallet, its value was essentially zero. That's what you would report. But <clears throat> Some guys maybe have held, you know, they weren't exactly whales, but if there was somebody holding 5,000 BTC on Coinbase, that's, that's a big deal at 1,400 bucks a coin. That's a pretty big deal. All right, so the question is, is, you know, is he liable for the extra work and the extra money I'm going to have to pay my CPA and or tax attorney because of this drop? And he doesn't know because it's a civil case. But what he did say was that there is a nine-month period that you can disavow a if somebody gives you something that you do not want that has value that you know and this is this is in place before Bitcoin existed. If somebody just drops something on you that has value that you would have to report to the IRS, you have nine months from that day to disavow that and prove the disavowment of that. Um, and then there's some statute of limitations on the, like three years later out. But what I was interested in was the fact that the guidance that the IRS has given on disavowment of something like a cryptocurrency is very sketchy at best, because I cannot prove that I completely disposed of the private key. So where the hell, what the hell is this? In my opinion, for all you shit coiners out there, especially those you any of the people that listen to this show are probably most likely not shit coiners, but I'm just saying, if you guys are listening and you're talking to shit coiners, especially people who are like thinking of talking about forming forks, you may want to remind them that they may or may not be liable for my time and the amount of money I have to spend extra to prepare my taxes because of their foolish bullshit antics. All right, so that was one of my favorite talks. Was the <laughs> Ultimately, my, one of my favorite talks was the tax talk. Then we have Chris Dannon that was talking about Bitcoin's role in the corporate world. Robert Breedluff came out and uh, talked about his piece of Masters of Slaves and Money, which was, it's very good. If you haven't listened to that one, you can catch that one with Guy Swan at Bitcoin Audible, formerly the crypto, uh, crypto economy. And he does a read of, um, of Robert Breedluff's Masters of Slaves and Money, and you really, it's it's so worth your time. Building uncancelable architecture with Matt Hill. Matt Hill, CEO of Start9. The, I, there seems to maybe be some controversy about what he's doing. There were some people that seemed to kind of snuff at Embassy, which is the box that they are releasing. It's sort of like a full node and it can run and uh, be a full node with Bitcoin and light, Lightning, but it's kind of was born out of being able to have a box that you just set up on your router and you can contact it and download and run relatively uncensorable software over the Tor network. And that software comes from places like GitHub. 
it seems like he's tried to unlock the ability to use GitHub as sort of an app store because there's hundreds of projects on GitHub that are very useful and are Tor compatible and mimic some of the things that we use today. I'm interested in it, but there was a lot of people who kind of weren't. And there was a lot of people that kind of were, but I got to tell you, man, uh, Matt Hill is a good, he's a good public speaker. I will give him that. That dude kind of got me fired up, whether or not his box is worth it or not. But I'm, I'm going to be looking into the start nine stuff just to, just to see. That was at 4.10 in the afternoon. I had to leave Ben Woosley's, <clears throat> uh, Woosley's um, talk, which was inevitability of the battle for the economy because my ass just couldn't take it anymore. I don't have much of an ass. It was hurting. And my apologies to Ben for my ass taking precedence over his talk. But dude, my ass comes first. Stephen Cole, I missed his entire thing, which was Bitcoin, a defense against tyranny. And I really wanted to see it. But again, I just, I couldn't sit anymore. It was just, it was just too much. Um, And then Gary Leland gave his closing talk. Now that wasn't the end of the day. No, oh hell no. There was like, we had to come back at 7.30 because Matt O'Dell and Marty Bent were doing a rabbit hole recap live, and that was a lot of fun. And then um, at the very end, Al's Lacrosse Awards. I got to hand it to Dirtbag Al, man. That dude is an interesting character. Um, bald and uses like, you know, shines his head with scalp wax or whatever you call it. Dressed in a full tuxedo with a black bow tie, wearing sandals. It was awesome. It was so much fun. And then the Sunday final dinner. Well, not dinner. It was brunch. For me, it was kind of a sad event. And that's where I got to talk to Jeff Vandrew about the tax implications of of fork drops and whatnot. I got to, like, you know, see all the people that I've been hanging out with since Thursday. And I realized it was going to be like, you know, it was from 10 o'clock to two o'clock and everybody, like a lot of people had brought their luggage because they were going to leave right from there to the airport to fly back home. And I realized right around 1230 or maybe a little bit earlier that if I don't leave right now, I'm going to watch this room dwindle down and I just can't witness it because I had that good of a time. I cannot tell you how eye-opening and Absolutely awesome going to Bitblock Boom 2020 was. I hope and pray that I can get to Bitblock Boom 2021 because it was it for me it was really important to finally get a chance to talk to and meet these people. So if you have a chance, uh, I don't know when tickets are going to go on sale for uh, Bitblock Boom 2021, but when they do, you need to go get one and. That's all I'm going to, oh, actually, I forgot. The last thing that I want to say before we start doing some news is um, the the tax thing, coming back to the tax thing, the IRS has released um, their new form, or it's a draft, okay? Let's be be clear about this. This is an IRS draft of the the 1040 for uh, taxes that we're going to be doing in for the 2020 tax year. And so I'm looking at it right now in PDF format. So it's form 1040, your normal form. And it's like your, your normal shit up at the very top filing status. You know, are you single, married, married filing separately? Then your name, uh, if a joint return, your home address, city and town, the normal shit, you know, you got to put in your social security numbers up there. Your presidential election campaign, if you wanted to, you know, donate three bucks, you know, or add three bucks to your shit. I don't know why I would want to do that because they all suck. But then right after that and before any, before they even get to quote the numbers, it states at any time during 2020, did you receive, sell, send, exchange, or otherwise acquire any financial interest in any virtual currency check boxes for yes or no. What is a virtual currency? Right? Is that definition better be damn clear because the second that I put Bitcoin 
and transfers uh, transfer part uh, part of my uh, Bitcoin to a physical open dime, is it virtual? Because I can physically pass that open dime to somebody else. In my opinion, it's not virtual. So I think that this definition thing is going to be a huge sticking point for many, many people. There's going to be many people who are like, oh, and of course it's a virtual currency, you idiot. It lives on the internet. Well, yeah, but I think it's worth the fight, the semantic fight to delay for as long as possible the ability for any government anywhere in the world to put their dick in us. Because if that's what you really like having done, well, there's all manner of clubs and shit for that. Otherwise, if you're a normal human being that doesn't really enjoy that kind of thing, then you may find it worth the semantic fight as to whether or not Bitcoin is actually virtual or what the hell a virtual currency actually is. And that definition better be fucking clear as crystal. Because if I have to pay you any money, then your definitions of what X is, man, X better be defined so that a blind person can identify it in a room full of other shit. That's how clear I require these definitions to be. So, and of course, you know, I require it. That doesn't mean that I won't, you know, couldn't get, uh, couldn't get put in jail because I violated, but you get what I'm, you see what I'm getting at. Anyway, hey guys, let's run the numbers. All right, well, because it's so damn early in the morning, it's still only 6.50. I'm way ahead of the opening bell for the New York Stock Exchange, so we're not going to be able to, to do that. I'd give you the futures, but honestly, CNBC's website, as far as market futures is concerned, kind of sucks. But let's talk about oil. Oil is set <clears throat> to go up a point and a fifth uh, to settle at or to come in at $43.48 for a barrel of West Texas uh, crude. Natural gas is going to be a point and three quarters to the downside. It's coming in at $2.60. Shit, bro. <clears throat> That'll, $2, a buck fifty will get you a little bit less than 1,000 cubic feet of natural gas. Gold is going to settle still below uh, $2,000. It's going to come in at like, well, it's sitting right now at $1,975. Well, $1, Silver is at 28 and a quarter. Eh, who gives a shit about wheat, man? It'll just jack up your gut anyway. So let's talk about real money. Bitcoin is at $11,664. I got a high over at BitAsset, $11,711. Do I have a low? I do not have a low. Okay, so the low is $11,664. Uh, 300,000 transactions were performed in the last 24 hours. That's about 1200 transactions on average per hour, but oh, wow, mercy me, good Lord, 2 million BTC have been sent in the last 24 hours. That's about 85,886 BTC being sent on average per hour. The average transaction value is 6.9 BTC and the median transaction value is modest at 0.038 BTC or about 450 bucks. Block times are low, nine minutes and 25 seconds. 0.4 BTC being taken in fees on a per block basis, 66.68 BTC being taken in fees overall in the last 24 hours. A precipitous drop in hash rate at almost 9% leaves us at only a mere, a scant, 116 hashes per second, Jesus. Uh, Ethereum is at $429. <laughs> Sorry, excuse me. Bcash is at 275. Litecoin is at 62. BSV is at 195. Ethereum Classic is at 6.7. Dogecoin holding it at 0.0033. And at 50,000 transactions for Doge over the last 24 hours, it's crushing Ethereum Classic. Uh, Litecoin and Bcash has fallen below 16,000 transactions in 24 hour periods to come in at a resounding 15,214 transactions over the last 24 hours nobody uses bcash okay stop it just god uh clark moody's price is coming in at 11,692 clark moody ran the numbers on whatever node clark moody looks at and is coming in at 
777.33 BTC in circulation. We have, oh, it, it looks like the mem or a, some mempool, mine probably reflects this, uh, the transaction size chilling out waiting to be cleared is 7,894. That's going to take only four blocks to clear. Um, Lightning Network, we have 1,054 BTC in the Lightning Network. That's $12.3 million in liquidity spread across 7,507 nodes, representing 37,550 channels. Uh, Tor capacity is 515.37 BTC. That's 48.9% for Tor capacity of the Lightning Network, which I believe is an all-time high. Tor nodes are weighing in at 2,363. That's going to do it for vitals. Anime. It's not the only good thing coming out of Japan because Japanese crypto traders are ditching XRP and Mona for Bitcoin. Turner Wright is pinning this one for Cointelegraph sometime this morning. Uh, most Japanese crypto traders may be leaving altcoins behind entirely. Uh, good Lord. The vast majority of Japanese crypto traders who started getting into the market in the last year may be investing solely in Bitcoin, according to data published on August the 19th. From the Japan Virtual and Crypto Assets Exchange Association. <laughs> First they laugh at you and then they form conferences and shit. Uh, Bitcoin's dominance relative to altcoins in the Japanese market reached more than 87% in April. No other token accounted for more than 6% of monthly volume traded. In the same month, the number of active accounts for spot crypto trading in Japan increased by 13,987, an all-time or uh, an all-time high at that time. Quote, it seems like Japanese investors' overall interest in altcoins have been shrinking, thank God, over time relative to their interest in Bitcoin, said Yayaga Hasawaga. Oh God, you know, some guy said it. A market analyst at Japan-based crypto exchange BitBank, quote, given the growth in the numbers of active accounts, the vast majority of the newer market participants in Japan, particularly since last summer, are likely to be interested only in Bitcoin, end quote. Hasegawa's analysis indicates that XRP was one of the biggest losers among Japanese crypto traders. The altcoin once accounted for about 40% of the monthly traded value in Japan's crypt, uh, cryptocurrency market, but that number dropped to almost 5% in April. Bitcoin also briefly lost ground to Monacoin in February, but regained its dominance following the early stages of the pandemic in March. Bitcoin's dominance worldwide hasn't exceeded 70% since Q1 2017, according to data from CoinMarketCap. As of this writing, the coin represents roughly 58% of the $373.6 billion combined crypto capitalization, its lowest point in 12 months. And am I scared? No. Because <laughs> what's going on now, now we have to survive the DeFi craze. All right. And once people start getting skinned alive out there on DeFi, then we will have IC 2017 ICO 3.0. We're at 2017 ICO 2.0 right now. And that thing is in full freaking gear. All right. A memory of Hal Finney. This was written on August 28th by Flip. Uh, I guess that's a publication. It's in BitcoinMagazine.com. And again, it was written on the anniversary of Hal Finney's uh, death, which is sad, but that, you know, it happened. We, we got to remember Hal. Running Bitcoin, buddy. Hal Finney is remembered as one of the early pioneers in Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system, and an advocate for widespread use of cryptography to help enhance people's privacy. Finney was one of the biggest defenders and supporters of Bitcoin from its earliest days. He rose to the defense of the still-incubating technology against fellow cryptologists who were convinced it would never work. Finney held the distinction of getting the first Bitcoin ever transferred to anybody as a test from Satoshi Nakamoto, whoever the hell that is. He was diagnosed with amyotrophic lateral sclerosis or ALS in August of 2009 and fought for years to continue to do what he loved, write code. From one of his last posts on the Bitcoin Talk forums titled Bitcoin and Me, he wrote, quote, ALS is a disease that kills motor neurons, which carry signals from the brain to the muscles. 
It causes first weakness, then gradually increasing paralysis. Today, I am essentially paralyzed. I operate the computer using a commercial eye tracker system. It also has a speech synthesizer, so this is my voice now. It has been an adjustment, but my life is not too bad. I can still read, listen to music, and watch TV and movies. I recently discovered that I can even write code. It's very slow, probably 50 times slower than I was before, but I still love programming and it gives me goals. That's my story. I'm pretty lucky overall. Even with the ALS, my life is very satisfying, end quote. ALS is a progressive, fatal neuromuscular disease that slowly robs the body of its ability to walk, speak, swallow, and breathe. The life expectancy of a person with ALS averages from two to five years from the time of diagnosis. ALS can strike anyone, and presently there is no known cause or cure. The Bitcoin Magazine team is participating in the Nashville chapter of the ALS Association's virtual walk and fundraiser. From now until October the 3rd, we'll be remembering Hal's legacy in different ways across all of our channels. Please consider donating towards our fundraising efforts by visiting bitcoinmagazine.com forward slash our hero Hal fundraiser. That's actually our hyphen hero hyphen Hal hyphen fundraiser, just so you know. If you'd like to donate to the ALS Association with Bitcoin, please visit and then they give a link. The Golden West chapter of the ALS Association is the first chapter to be approved for Bitcoin donations and has worked with Cash App to make this possible. The cash tag is cash tag ALSA Golden West, all one word. Both fundraisers are being handled by the ALS Association through its websites, and we are not directly accepting donations. Please double check all URLs before giving any donations to ensure they're going to the proper place. Yeah, don't get scammed, guys. <clears throat> The ALS Association organizes walks over the entirety of the United States, and there's most likely one near you. If you're interested in starting your own fundraiser, please let us know via Twitter, and we'll be sure to help promote your efforts. We've also set up a reward on Carrot, a new app we're using to support all of our missions at Bitcoin Magazine, and you can earn sats if your fundraiser reaches $100 in donations. As our latest piece of content about Finney, We've published an article by Aaron Von Weirdom detailing his work on reusable proof of work. Quote, how, how Hal Finney's quest for digital cash led to RPOW and more, end quote. His article is the fifth installment of Bitcoin Magazine's The Genesis File series, which has covered the advancements that led to Bitcoin's creation. The previous articles in this series covered David Chom's eCash, Adamback's HashCash, we dies B money and Nick Zabo's bit gold Finney's dedication to his craft will always be an inspiration to that value, freedom, privacy, and sovereignty. And then they give the most famous quote, probably in the Bitcoin space, Hal Finn at Hal Finn running Bitcoin, 933 PM, January the 10th, 2009 rip Hal Finney. Hackers launched third 51% attack on Ethereum Classic this month. Over 7,000 blocks reorged after August 3rd. Ethereum Classic 51% attack by Dan Howarth, writing for Decrypt.co. Strategies to protect the Ethereum Classic blockchain from 51% attacks might be too little too late. For the third time in August, hackers gained control of the Ethereum Classic blockchain in a 51% attack that reorged over 7,000 blocks. Jeez. Though Ethereum Classic developers are rushing to protect the blockchain from future attacks, these three attacks raise concerns over the network's security. OKX, for instance, has considered delisting the coin to protect itself from future losses. Hackers conduct a 51% attack to take over the blockchain. Blockchains are so-called decentralized ledgers, because they distribute all the work of validating transactions across a global network of computers called miners. That's not what validates the transactions. Maybe in Ethereum Classic, I guess. It is different than Bitcoin, but uh, we do it differently. We do it the right way. Each transaction must be approved by over 51% of the miners, so the theory goes it's very difficult for a single actor to control 51% of the network, since that would require an, an, an immense amount of computational power. But if someone managed to control the network, they'd be able to bend the blockchain to their will, credit their accounts with free cryptocurrency, for instance, or divert other people's transactions to their their own people's wallets. Impossible. They'll never do it. Not so for Ethereum Classic, the unforked version of the more popular Ethereum blockchain, which this month was thrice exploited by the hackers. The latest attack took place last night. Hackers managed to once again brute force 
their way to majority control of the network and managed to reorganize more than 7,000 blocks. About two days of mining, the attack was identified by Austrian mining company Bitfly, which also identified the first and second attacks, wherein hackers reorganized almost 8,000 blocks and took home around $9 million in double spend transactions, much of it from crypto exchange OKX. I would delist that shit immediately, man. ETC Cooperative, the nonprofit that watches over the Ethereum Classic blockchain, said in a tweet late last night, that it is aware of today's attack and are working with others to test and evaluate proposed solutions as quickly as humanly possible. Okay, I, I said quickly as humanly possible. They just say quickly as possible, but I have to embellish sometimes. Not much is known about the latest attack. One of the reasons it occurred was that there's far less computational power backing Ethereum Classic than on larger blockchains like Ethereum or Bitcoin, meaning it's not so difficult to briefly rent enough computational power to gain majority control over the blockchain there are two drafts to change Ethereum Classic's algorithm to make it more difficult, but they've not yet been implemented. Since the hack, Ethereum Classic's token price has fallen by a mere, a mere 1.68% per data metric site coin market cap, but the long-term damage may be greater. The coins listed as suffering from degraded performance on Coinbase, for instance. <coughs> Excuse me. And after the previous two attacks earlier this month, OKX said it would consider delisting ETC, pending the results of the Ethereum Classic community's work to improve the security of its change. This is because OKX bore the brunt of the first attack and suffered a loss of approximately $6.5 million in ETC, according to a statement of August 15th. Quote, the loss was fully borne by OKX according to its user protection policy and did not cause any loss of the platform's users. The ETC that users have deposited on OKX remains safe, it is it said after the previous attack. Ethereum Classic developers must plug the exploit before OKX makes its move. I, you know, come on, guys. I, I, I'm going to tinfoil hat this one. I think this is a group of people that are working either with knowledge of, at the behest of, or possibly even unknowingly by Ethereum. I think Ethereum is attacking Ethereum Classic so that the miners that Ethereum has right now will not go and mine Ethereum Classic. I think they're trying to destroy Ethereum Classic to make their bullshit move to Ethereum 2.0 or whatever the F we're calling it nowadays. <clears throat> uh, it, I, I think they're trying to do it before they make that move so that they're signaling to the miners, you have no place to go. You have no place to go. And that's like a double screw you from the Ethereum camp. Now, do I know this for sure? No. But all of a sudden they start getting attacked, you know, Ethereum Classic, right before this move to uh, Ethereum 2.0, which I doubt will ever be successfully released, but we'll have to see. Still, though, if they really are doing it, man, those guys suck, dude. Probably because greed is driving DeFi boom. Founders at Smart Contract Summit 2020 says... Matthew DeSalvo is writing it for on August the 30th for Decrypt.co. Uh, let's see what he has to say about this. The current explosion of decentralized finance is being driven by greed, and its boom isn't sustainable, according to DeFi superstar and the creator of YFI, Andrew Cronjay. We should also be worried about the huge amounts of money being made with yield farming and DeFi protocols becoming too big. These are some of the comments made by uh, DeFi Protocol at 2020 Smart Contract Summit yesterday. Quote, I think the reason there is such a massive influx of money right now is because people are making money in insane amounts, said Cronjay when asked about what is driving the growth of DeFi by the co-founder of Chainlink, Sergey Nazrov. <clears throat> he said that people snapping up and selling governance tokens uh, have led to the boom. Quote, it's not a sustainable part of DeFi, he said, adding that valuable protocols in the DeFi space, such as Synthetics, Compound, and Chainlink, would still be around when the greed phase is over. Ave, co-founder and CEO Stanny Kulchov, also shared Cronje's pessimism. What I'm scared of is that while DeFi protocols are growing a lot, they're starting to think how they can accumulate all the wealth. They're starting to become the banks they basically tried to escape. Yes, that you should... And read that sentence again. They're starting to become the banks they're basically, they basically tried to escape. Okay? Greed does this shit to people. It's part of human nature. It's almost impossible to get away from. But he added that he did like how people are using Ave 
a protocol that lets you earn interest on deposits and borrow assets, and said the best way to avoid the problem of DeFi protocols getting too big would be for different protocols to work together seamlessly, or possibly shamelessly. That's my take on it. Also on the panel was Kanye, or oh sorry, Kane Warwick, the founder of synthetic asset platform Synthetics. Warwick said that while he agreed that the boom in DeFi was being in part driven by a token boom, there was an underlying powerful force at play. We're all on the ground floor of this redesign of traditional finance systems into new decentralized systems. Anyone who participates will reap significant rewards if they allocate their time and capital. Oh, God. Jesus. DeFi has exploded with popularity this year. Almost $9 billion in cryptocurrency is now locked in the industry's smart contracts a number that has doubled since the start of July, according to data analytics site DeFi Pulse. The market cap of DeFi has also blown up, sitting at $17.6 billion, according to today's CoinGecko data, and the surge in investment has led some to believe that it may be a bubble on the verge of bursting. The CEO agreed at the summit that what is being built with the current DeFi protocols is exciting. Quote, money Legos, end quote, allowing developers to put different existing DeFi tools together to make new ones was one hot topic. Cronjay said it was, quote, awesome, end quote. So, so often you see people build stuff that you could never have envisioned, like someone launches a product that uses your platform, and you're like, how the hell could they think of this? Then you play with it, and you think it's cool, end quote. There's much less of a plan and a lot of exploratory fun, end quote. Oh, Honestly, man, I mean, people are going to get rich in this and I get that, but you've got to know when to punch out to be able to keep that wealth. This is exactly, this is exactly ICO 2017 2.0. That's all this is. So oh, we got to give hats off to Craig right here. Helen Parts writing for Cointelegraph sometime this morning. Craig Wright files another libel suit against Roger Ver. After 2019 fail, oh man, Craig Wright and Roger Ver are finally in the same jurisdiction. So Craig Wright, a self the self-proclaimed creator of BTC and professional asswipe, no, that's me, is reportedly continuing to file more defamation suits against perceived rivals, despite none of his previous attempts turning out to be successful. On August the 25th, Wright filed a libel suit against major industry figure Roger Ver with the High Court of Antigua and Barbuda industry publication CoinGeek reports. According to an official defamation claim obtained by CoinGeek, Wright is seeking legal action against Fur for publicly stating that Wright is not the true Satoshi Nakamoto, the anonymous creator of Bitcoin. The court document specifically refers to Ver's video message to Wright in May of 2019 stating Craig Wright is a liar and a fraud, so sue me. Again. End quote. The new defamation claim seeks an injunction restraining Ver from further stating similar defamatory allegations on platforms like YouTube and Twitter, as well as payments. And as compensation for the defamation, the document reads, as reported, Wright previously served Ver with a libel suit in the High Court of England and Wales for calling him a liar and a fraud in a YouTube video in 2019. The video was subsequently stricken for violating YouTube community guidelines, which prompted Wright's libel suit in May of 2019. Despite the video being removed from YouTube, Ver's message to Wright is still available on his official Twitter account as of press time. The High Court of England subsequently dismissed Wright's libel suit in 2019. Due to question of jurisdiction, the Court of Appeal of England and Wales also dropped Wright's appeal, claiming that the suit is not a UK-related issue in May of 2020. The new defamation suit will apparently have more chances in terms of jurisdiction as both Wright and Ver are citizens of Antigua and Barbuda, According to the court document, as Cointelegraph reported, Wright is an Australian citizen allegedly residing in London. The Australian scientist reportedly claimed to be a citizen from Antigua and Barbuda and not from Australia in 2019. <laughs> a citizen of St. Kitts and Nevis, uh, Ver apparently acquired his Antigua and Barbuda citizenship through the country's citizenship investment program. Wright and Ver did not immediately respond to Cointelegraph's request for comment. Oh, ain't that a bitch. So Ver plops down, God only knows how much money to become a citizen of this freaking country and is immediately sued by another member of that country because I guess Ver didn't look to see who else was a member or, or was a citizen of that country, which seems like at this point, 
with, you know, while Craig Wright is still walking around as a corporeal being on this fucking planet, you should probably watch your ass as to where you're going to live. Although Craig Wright is a liar and a fraud is not Satoshi Nakamoto. Fucking sue me, bitch. Wyoming has lost crypto cowboy. Jack Martin writing for Cointelegraph. Wyoming's uh, crypto cowboy is unsaddled. Oh in primaries by alt-right candidate. This was written this morning. I really wish I had the music from Bob Dylan uh, about the, the, guy, the guy telling his mama to bury his guns in the ground. He doesn't need them anymore. That would be perfect for this. This actually sucks ass, though. I really liked Tyler Lindholm. Uh, I really liked his work with Caitlin Long and all the rest of the crew that's out there in Wyoming, even though that they do deal with cryptocurrency and not solely Bitcoin. But hey, I can't hate every single person that I ever see. A House majority whip fell as right-wing factions sought to remove moderate Republicans from the party, but blockchain legislation is safe, says Tyler Lindholm. Uh, you'll see, he has been unseated in the Republican state primaries by a candidate representing the far right of the party. So far, it is unclear how this may affect the state's blockchain-friendly legislation. Although, following his defeat, Lindholm said that he was 100% confident that the blockchain laws are safe and secure, according to a report by Forbes. The upset came as part of a determined push by right-wing donors, conservative advocacy groups, and factions within the Wyoming Republican Party, which netted a number of key victories over incumbents. As many of the Republican candidates will be unopposed in the general election, Local news outlet Star Tribune noted that it was likely to have significant implications on policy. Lindholm's role as majority whip helped him to push through a number of pieces of blockchain-friendly legislation during the time as, in his time in office, positioning Wyoming as one of the top U.S. states for blockchain-related businesses. This has attracted the attention of big-name companies within the industry, such as Kraken and Charles Hoskins, I-O-H-K. Charles Hoskins, the, one of the co-founders of Ethereum. If you get that joke, then you're probably too nerdy for life. <laughs> I got the joke. I'm the one that made it. With his experience of U.S. legislation surrounding blockchain technology, Lindholm shouldn't have too much difficulty finding himself a lucrative industry position should he so desire. Certainly, he appeared to have taken defeat on the chin in a Facebook Live address the day after the primaries. Quote, this is a rough year, but we'll keep plugging away. We still live in Wyoming after all. It could be worse. Oh, that's a good attitude. I, I, like I, I like Tyler, and this is one of the reasons why I like him. Yeah, and he's going to totally land on his feet. You have not heard the last from Tyler, and in fact... It may just be, it may just be a gift from God. Who knows? I don't know. We'll, we'll just have to find out what 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 this is all going to mean. Uh, and last up, here's what will bring Bitcoin to half a million dollars, according to Tyler and Cameron Winklevi. No, what well, Winklevoss, collectively known as the Winklevi. All right, this is written by Daily Hodel staff for the Daily Hodel sometime yesterday, or no, actually the day before yesterday. Tyler and Cameron Winklevoss, the co-founders of Crypto Exchange Gemini, believe the Bitcoin is tremendously undervalued as long as it trades below $500,000. <laughs> In a lengthy post, the Winklevi elaborately explain how the monetary policies of the United States government and Federal Reserve have made the prospects of hyperinflation very likely. The Bitcoin entrepreneurs say U.S. debt could swell to $29 trillion in 2021, from $22 trillion at the start of the year. The twins also point out that in an effort to monetize debt, the Fed has significantly grown its balance sheet from around $2 trillion in 2010 to over $7 trillion this year. With the emergence of COVID-19, the Winklevi say the world is now facing a mountain of debt. Quote, from 2009 to 2019, the U.S. debt-to-GDP ratio swelled from 83%. 206 post-COVID, it's on track to hit 135% by September of this year. To bottom line this, the U.S. debt-to-GDP ratio will grow more this year than it did over the entire prior decade. China's debt-to-GDP ratio was 300% entering COVID and has grown to 318% as of Q1 2020. The rest of the world is not faring any better, end quote. While there are several options to deal with this massive debt, the BTC magnates note that the government will likely pursue a strategy that will reduce the value of the United States dollar through inflation. Quote, when a central bank elects to pursue a soft default strategy, 
It targets a particular inflation rate and proceeds to print enough money to hit it. Once reached, this target inflation rate reduces a government's debt obligations by the same rate. As inflation rears its ugly head, the Winklevi predict the invest- that investors will seek refuge in store of value assets. Although gold is the tried and tested hedge against inflation, the early BTC investors point out that the precious metal is inferior compared to Bitcoin in many aspects, including supply and portability. Gold supply may be scarce on Earth, but it is abundant in outer space. Also, gold can be very difficult to move in times of crisis. Meanwhile, BTC supply is forever fixed at 21 million. The King Crypto can also easily be transferred anywhere around the globe and, well, it can be transferred anywhere around the globe 24-7, but honestly, we're, we need to include low Earth orbit in that calculation, and that's going to be important in the years to come. Because of BTC's market advantages, sorry, I screwed that up. Because of BTC's advantages, the Winklevi believe that the top cryptocurrency will cannibalize gold's market, gold's market cap of $9 trillion U.S., quote, if we are right about using gold, uh, using a gold framework to value Bitcoin and Bitcoin continues on this path, then the bull case scenario for Bitcoin is that it is undervalued by a multiple of 45. Said differently, the price of Bitcoin could appreciate 45x from where it is today, which means we could see a price of $500,000 US per Bitcoin. And that's going to do it for that hit of hopium. <sighs> that's it for the morning roundup. I do not have a train wreck for you. I honestly, I probably should have put that Craig Wright story as a, as a train wreck, but he's been, I'm not going to give him that distinction. You know, again, he's been in there too many times. I got to let some, let some time pass before he graces your daily train wrecked again. So there's no smoldering pile. However, there is a joke. Dad says jokes, by the way, just, just so you know, did you hear about the cheese factory explosion in France? All that was left was debris. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sorry. No, I, I'm just not going to do the sound effect for that because that's just, oh, that one's terrible. Get it, Brie? It's cheese. Yeah, okay, fine, whatever. All right. Uh, I am looking at a stack. This is what I'm going to leave you with today. I'm looking at a stack of the swag that I got from Bitblock Boom. Oh, 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 hey, oh, uh, everybody, by the way, everybody at Bitblock Boom in their swag bag got a full deck of Shamari. That's right. Play at Play Shamari uh, on Twitter is a card. If you haven't played the game or heard my review, um, I've got a full review of the, of the card game. It's fun to play with kids. I love it. And every single person at Bitblock Boom got their own deck of Shamari. Talk about, see, this is how you market. But one of the problems with this is how you market is that this is how much money you got to cough up before you start making money. I wish nothing but the best for the guys over at Shamri. It's a wonderful deck. It's made of good card stock. It's got a great color scheme. It's got really good art that is definitely kid-friendly. The whole game is kid-friendly. It's a good way to get your kids interested in blockchains and 51% attacks. And it's much, much easier than... I make it out to sound. I, I've got, like I said, I've got a full review. You can go over to Play Shamari's Twitter. It's at Play Shamari um, on Twitter. And they, every once in a while, they repost my um, uh, review on this podcast of their game. It is, it's very much well worth it. And if you're one of the guys that went to Bitblock Boom and you're looking at that deck of cards, open it, read the instructions online, play the son of a bitch, and just think about what what that means the fact that we have people that are that there are so many people that are flocking to this space and they're bringing like literally every talent that they've ever developed in their life to bear on this thing i think about that and can only be bullish it's not the price it's how many people are flooding flooding this and they're bringing their art they're bringing their knowledge of how to construct games they're bringing their financial knowledge, their legal knowledge, everything. They're, it's all flooding into this space. And this is one of the things that, that was my, my final takeaway 
from BitBlock Boom was the fact that I cannot go back to normie space. And I think that's, there's times when you like, you realize that you found the rabbit hole and that you're in it. And then there's a, the next time that you, that you start contemplating life is when you realize just how far in the rabbit hole you actually are. But then there's the realization, the third realization for me is I'm never leaving. I can't. I can't go back to normie land. And if for whatever reason I end up in a normie job, I'm not going to be happy. And I don't think a lot of us that are this far deep are, would ever be happy. That's why I'm bullish, is watching all these people bring all their talents and all their treasure and all their tool sets to Bitcoin. Watching the speakers up there, the, everybody, everybody that's in Bitcoin that I know, like either professionally or, or as a hobbyist or whatever, we were all alive pre-2009 or pre-2008 in the drop of the, of the white paper at least. It was, we only had Normieville to live in. That's all we had. But now we've got something different. It's like Galt's Gulch, and it's just a fucking black hole, and it's dragging all of the world's talent into it. And once all the world's talent ends up here, and it, they probably will, either that or if they don't, if they don't get in, they're going to end up expiring as part of human, just the human condition. We have a tendency to, you know, die of old age and train wrecks and shit. But other than that, I, I honestly believe that people are going to start more and more people are going to fall down this hole because the rabbit hole isn't, isn't apparently something that you just discover and you fall down. It has a magnetic force that pulls you into it and throws you into its guts and, and says, now try to get out. I can't get out, man. I'm, I'm too far gone. And please don't send help immediately. I kind of like where I'm at. With all that said, I'm going to go ahead and close this on up and tell you the usual. I'll see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin And, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.